Preface of The U.S. Army in the Iraq War, Volume 1, by U.S. Army Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Adam Cable. Preface Preface Roman numeral 31 in September 2013, Chief of Staff of the Army, General Raymond T. Odierno, directed the Operation Iraqi Freedom Study Group to research and write an operational history of the U.S. Army's experience in the Iraq War from 2003 to 2011. This volume, The United States Army in the Iraq War 2003 to 2006, is the first of two fulfilling that task. It tells the story of the U.S.-led campaigns to remove Saddam Hussein and his Iraqi Ba'athist regime from power in 2003 and to stabilize the country following those operations. It details the course of the campaigns up to a point in late 2006 when President George W. Bush and other U.S. leaders changed the strategy in Iraq to one that resulted in the surge counteroffensive by American troops in 2007-2008. to That counteroffensive and the subsequent withdrawal of the coalition forces from Iraq are the subjects of the second volume of this series. In scope, the study group members consciously modeled this history after the Army's Green Book histories of World War II. As the Green Books did, and as General Odierno charged us to do, we focused on the operational level of war. These volumes are narrative histories that tell the story of U.S. forces in Iraq, mainly from the perspective of the theater command in Baghdad and the operational commands immediately subordinate to it. They focus on the decisions and intent of the senior three- and four-star commanders in Baghdad over time. In writing this history, we strove to evaluate the major decisions those commands faced, to understand what commanders intended to accomplish, and to comprehend how the commands interpreted the situation at the time. We also traced many of those decisions to the tactical level to judge how strategic and operational intent translated into changes on the battlefield. At the same time, we examined the broad trends and tactical developments that affected the operational and strategic levels, including missed opportunities along these lines. Our team also assessed the impact of changes to the institutional army, such as modularization and transformation, on the operational conflict in Iraq. Finally, we explored the assumptions underpinning the U.S. campaign in Iraq at various times and assessed their validity. We wrote this history with two audiences in mind. For current and future Army leaders, we sought to explain the key operational and strategic lessons from the Iraq War that, in our estimation, should inform strategy, operations, and the Army as an institution. In addition, we attempted to write this history in an accessible way, so that a civilian audience can understand the Army's experience in the war. We believe too few military accounts thus far explain to the American public what the armed forces have gone through in the post-September 11, 2001, or 9-11, wars. If unaddressed, this can lead to a gulf between the public and its military. Although this book is an Army history, we included other military services and international forces in the story, sometimes in great detail. In contemporary warfare, the army goes to war as part of a joint force and often with coalition partners. 
It would be impossible to explain what the army experienced in Iraq without including the story of the U.S. Marines, the British Armed Forces, and other coalition ground forces. We also attempted, to the best of our knowledge and ability, to include the enemy perspective, the nature of the operating environment, and the political and social context for the conflict. We have done this to explain why various groups and peoples fought against or alongside coalition forces, what they hoped to achieve, and how their leaders made decisions in response to, or independent of, the coalition's actions. Volume 2 of this series will include a concluding summary of our major findings concerning the operational and strategic lessons of the war, but readers will see throughout this first volume some of the themes that we have drawn from our research. The March to April 2003 campaign to remove the regime of Saddam Hussein achieved its operational objectives more quickly than either side or outside observer expected. But the aftermath of that victory was equally surprising as the United States and its allies failed to consolidate their gains by stabilizing the country, rebuilding the state they had destroyed, and perhaps establishing the basis for a sustainable political outcome. In the first year of the war, a difficult post-regime change stabilization campaign grew into an even more difficult insurgency. In the three years after that, the conflict became an ethnic and sectarian civil war among Iraqi factions that were battling for power and survival. For the army, the story of the four-year period following the fall of Saddam Hussein is a mixed one. The stunningly swift destruction of the Iraqi military and advance to Baghdad showcased the U.S. military's proficiency in conventional warfare. In the stabilization and counterinsurgency campaigns that followed, however, thinly stretched units and overtaxed headquarters often found themselves undertaking unexpected missions for which they were doctrinally, materially, and perhaps intellectually ill-prepared. Throughout that period, the Iraqi theater of operations was constrained, with units and leaders operating under a chronic shortage of troops and following a strategy and campaign plan that ultimately failed. Under these conditions, army leaders and their soldiers went through a difficult learning process, suffering painful losses, more than 36,000 killed and wounded during the war's duration, as they adapted to a conflict whose character changed rapidly. By late 2006, many tactical army units had come up with innovative solutions to their local problems, some by recalling counterinsurgency lessons from the army's distant past, others by exploiting emergent opportunities to work with tribes and local communities, but not until 2007 would these approaches be synchronized and integrated at the operational and strategic levels. In writing this narrative history, we have relied to a great degree on military records from U.S. operational headquarters and interviews, many of them not previously accessible to scholars. Mixing oral history interviews with archival documentary research creates, in our opinion, considerable synergy. Some readers, particularly those within the national security community, may be surprised with information revealed in this book. Our study benefited tremendously from U.S. Central Command's, or CENTCOM's, support in declassifying and or redacting over 30,000 pages of material selected by our team. We were also aided by the products of an earlier effort led by the researchers of General George Casey's book, Strategic Reflections, which had yielded over 10,000 pages of declassified or redacted material. To further ensure we properly safeguarded sensitive national security information, 
This manuscript underwent security reviews at the Defense Office of Prepublication and Security Review and at the U.S. Army War College. We have also benefited from the fact that much more is known today about the enemy and about the actions of the Iraqi government than was known during the early years of the war. From our vantage point in 2017, however, we recognize that this is a history of a war that is not yet over. With thousands of U.S. and coalition forces back in Iraq campaigning against an enemy that is a successor to al-Qaeda in Iraq, we understand that there may be many more accounts written before the story truly ends. We do not expect that our work will be definitive. Instead, we hope our contribution helps to open the door to future research by others whose investigations we fully expect will supersede our own. The scope of this project and the time available prevented us from covering a number of major areas of research that we will have to leave for others to examine. We hope that our work at the operational level will point the way for scholars to research and write the story of U.S. ground forces at the tactical level. Some histories at that level have begun to appear, such as Dale Andrade's Surging South of Baghdad, but many more are needed. Another omission in this history is the role of U.S. Special Operations Forces in Iraq, who were involved in virtually every major development during the war, but whose story we have not been able adequately to tell. The Special Operations Commands are not yet ready to grant researchers complete access to their operational records to chronicle the often amazing tales they contain. In particular, the Combined Joint Special Operations Task Force Arabian Peninsula, or CJSOTF-AP, consistently produced results far above what would normally be expected of a brigade-level command, and little has been written about their exploits. The sections of our history that recount the special operations role in Iraq represent a small fraction of what the special operators actually did, and we hope that someday soon that story can be fully told. We also have not been able to provide a full account of the enemy and Iraqi forces of various kinds that fought during the war, though we have worked hard to assemble as much of that information as we can. Neither the enemy forces nor the Iraqi security forces have yet told their own story, and until they do, historians' understanding of their perspective is necessarily incomplete. A few other areas of research were beyond the scope of this history, but should be undertaken by researchers, including the shared logistics that supported both Iraq and Afghanistan, air power in Iraq, and the maritime component of the Iraq campaign. The functional areas of information operations and reconstruction efforts deserve their own treatment as well. Even more importantly, the Defense Department needs to produce a history of U.S. Central Command in the post-9-11 wars, so that the operational histories of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, as well as other smaller operations, can be put into their regional and strategic context. The fight against al-Qaeda in Iraq, or the Islamic State in Iraq, was part of a broader campaign against al-Qaeda and its associated movements. Fighting in Yemen, Somalia, Mali, and other locations was connected through a strategic framework, both ours and our enemies, with the fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. This strategic history should be modeled on the U.S. Army in World War II series volume, The Supreme Command, an overarching history of the Allies in the European theater, without which the operational histories of the European theater cannot be fully appreciated.
A history set in Iraq will contain many Arabic personal and place names, many which have no standard spelling. In rendering these Arabic names into English, we have followed standard transliteration in many cases, but in others, we have used the spelling most common within the U.S. military, whether that spelling followed transliteration rules or not. We also generally chose to refer to Iraqis using English formalities rather than the more familiar Iraqi style. Therefore, instead of the Iraqi style of referring to General Babakir Zabari as General Babakir, we refer to him as General Zabari. For simplicity's sake, and to reflect U.S. military and Iraqi usage, we have also tended to drop the articles from the spelling of place names in the text. The maps are more formal and retain the article. Finally, throughout these volumes, we, the authors, retain full responsibility for all matters of interpretation, as well as for any errors or omissions of fact. Colonel Joel Rayburn, Colonel Frank Sobchak, Washington, D.C., February 2016. End of Preface Read by Adam Cable, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, 2021